Well, comrade, what now? Straight forward conversation. Found a way to cosplay your voice. Cosplay? <laughs> what does that mean? I, you know, it's if you could imagine that someone was to take the properties of cosplay that you loathe so much and magically transform it into an audio format. That's what I imagined you just did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty unique way of putting it. I hadn't thought about that before. I try to be pretty unique in the way that I think about things. You're definitely one of one. Ain't no other like me. I stand I stand tall and proud on mountains. As opposed to silently trudging the valleys in shame. Sure. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert. And with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. How's it going? Hey, hey. This week, we are back from out of space, and we are here to look upon that look upon your face. Um, oh. Yeah. We... <laughs> I wasn't expecting the, the, the beat poetry or whatever you call that. Whatever that rhyme was, that was unexpected. Uh... I was I was trying to pull a lyric from a song, but it it was very mangled, so it it very it was very loosely associated with the song that I was thinking of. Um, what song was that? I think, I think I was trying to pull like one of the lines from "I Will Survive." Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I didn't actually know the line, so I just kind of took the parts of the song that I did know and just kind of, you know, Frankenstein it for my purposes. Good enough. Yeah, I I think so. That's what I often tell my boss. Good enough. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Put in my a little bit car- of effort. Yeah. Well, I mean, not that little, but well, not that much. There we go. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Look, it might not have been maximum effort, but it sure as heck was not minimum either. Exactly. You get me. That's yeah. that's that's a that's a progress report for me right there summed up in in the span of a couple of seconds he's not the best worker but he's probably not the worst worker we have exactly <laughs> <laughs> and that's the that's the basic uh premise that's the basic philosophy i live my life by which is as long as i'm better than the worst possible worker then you have no real reason to fire me yeah, and you have no real reason to work so hard that you become the best worker because in the end, exactly. what does it matter? Exactly, exactly. Uh, my level of effort is just enough to stay above water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you stay above water, you generally stay alive. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and as long as we is... can survive, that's what we're all about, right? I will survive. Exactly. Back to the song. There we go. Exactly. I should look up those song lyrics and uh, post up on our Instagram exactly which part I was thinking of. But yes. Anyways, this week we are back with our monthly read through. And if you remember 
from uh, our last episode or last couple episode, this year we are reading through Solo from DC Comics. When te- when Solo lives, terror dies. That really should have been on the hardcover edition of Solo. <laughs> I would have loved that. <laughs> it would have been hilarious. <laughs> we should post that on Instagram just so people know what we're talking about instead of just thinking that we're just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Just making things up. But anyways. Oh, what were we going to say? I was going to say, I think I still have those Eric Larson Spider-Man comics that taught me who Solo was. I'm pretty sure we could find it online. There aren't enough comics with Solo where it'd be hard to find that specific image. And I'm pretty sure he says that in every every appearance he has. Yeah, but I wonder if instead of saying while Solo lives, if you know, since he's talking about himself, he goes, "While I live, terror dies." I feel like he usually says his own name. So people know who he is because he's so obscure. If you didn't say his name, you wouldn't know who he was. Yeah, they just constantly be like, that guy is constantly killing terror. Mm-hmm. Because he's living. I don't know his name, but as long as he's alive, terror is dying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has to let people know who he is, man. That's important. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, rule number one in marketing. Exactly. I bet you didn't if know they don't that know that Solo. you exist, there's no chance that they'll buy your product. Yeah, if they don't know that I exist, how can Terra die? It, it can't. It'll keep the on entire, living. Exactly. The entire conceit of like the reason that Solo exists just falls apart there if people don't realize that. Yeah, it's very important. <laughs> That's right. This is, the, this is the episode of Between the Gutters that is an absolute fever dream. We did hits of cocaine before we started this episode. Uh, we're just uh we're just mainlining meth as we speak (laughs) i might have to edit Uh, all those parts where we hear you snorting yeah 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 well anyways you want to tell the good people which creative genius we are going to be uh discussing today today we are covering solo number two which puts the spotlight on Richard Corbin. I'll read his little bio from the end of the issue, just so we have a baseline understanding of who he is. Richard Corbin was born in 1940 and grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. In 1968, he drew his first comics fanzine work, and in 1970, self-published his first underground comic, titled Fantagore. The following year, Corbin burst upon the mainstream comic scene with a story in Warren's Creepy magazine. In the years since, he has consistently written and drawn some of the most memorable stories and characters in the history of the medium. From the first, Corbin explored the themes and subjects that would become so closely associated with his graphic creations. Violence, terror, and eroticism. His astounding body of work places this humble man firmly firmly alongside comics visionaries such as Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, and Robert Crumb. Richard Corbin still lives and works in Kansas City, Missouri with his wife, Donna, who calls him Corb. His work can be seen in the DC Collections Batman Black and White Volume 1 
and Hellblazer Hard Time, and the hardcover, The House on the Borderland. Okay, so this issue was published in... Uh, it has a cover date of February 2005, so it probably came out in very late 2004. Hey, Drew? Drew? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to clarify something. You just said that he still lives, but I'm pretty sure Richard, um, Richard Corbin died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just getting to that. That's why I, okay. I pointed out when this comic originally came out. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, he he actually passed away a couple years ago in December of 2020 after heart surgery. He was 80 years old. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, that's what I was getting at with the date of the comic. But that that's uh, just an introduction of who he is and where he came from, uh, what he where he grew up and some of the... Notable uh, accomplishments he achieved in comics. He's won numerous awards, but perhaps his most prestigious achievements are the 2009 Grand Spectrum Award, the Grand Prix Award from Angoulême in 2018, which is a Lifetime Achievement Award that's considered the most prestigious in Franco-Belgian comics. And he was also inducted into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame in 2012. So... There's a lot more awards that he won in addition to that, but you know he's ha- he had a long career, so he's been he definitely accomplished a lot. Uh, like the little bio said, he started drawing his own underground comics in the 60s. In the 70s, he did some stuff for Warren's magazines like Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella, and it was also in the mid 70s he contributed significant work to. Uh, magazines like Metal Hurlant and Heavy Metal. And then in the mid-80s, he started his own publishing imprint, Fantagore Press, which is named after one of his early comics. And he used that to publish some of his own comics, like Den, which was one of his most famous creations. You know what, Albert? I don't think I ever told you this, or if I did, maybe it was just such a long time ago I forgot, but I have something I'm very ashamed of. Uh, and I think it's time for me to confess to you on this podcast. I, mean, I promise you, like, whoever it is that you murdered, I will take that secret to my grave. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, my secret shame that I've been carrying with me all these years. It's not just a shame. It's a its a regret. One of my biggest life regrets in comics. But many years ago... We were at one of the quarter bin sales hosted by the friends of the San Francisco Public Library. Hmm. Every they used they haven't had a sale in a couple of years, but they used to have these sales where they would have in their little warehouse uh, location they would have all these tables set up with just dozens upon dozens of long boxes packed to the brim with comics and everything was 25 cents and we would go there as soon as they opened and just go ham on those comics trying to dig through every box if possible and just you know spend like 40 50 bucks grabbing piles and piles of quarter comics but those sales would get super crowded right especially hmm. when you go right when they open because everybody's just in line and everybody's trying to be the first one digging through a box so they can get first pickings of whatever's in there. And everybody's just hoping that they get lucky stumbling upon 
some treasure. And anyway, I, I went to a box and I started digging through it. And, you know, it was it started off with a lot of the typical junk that we normally see. Various random Marvel and DC comics that, you know, we're not too interested in. Or they were just random issues that didn't have... Like, it wouldn't really have made sense to pick up an, an issue of... I don't know. It's like issue... 342 of some random series and that you don't really need you don't have any context for it but i was digging through the box and then i came upon a run of den richard corbin's den and it was a consecutive mm-hmm. pile of them but i think mm-hmm. i was because i was like digging through so fast it didn't register to me what i was looking at and i kind of just like passed passed them by you know like and it wasn't until like after I looked through them, there was maybe like at least six or ten of them. But after I passed them up, I was like, wait a minute. I think that was Richard Corbin. And then I went backwards. And then there was a guy who was looking over my shoulder, just standing right behind me. And as soon as I went back to the den, the dude was like, oh, I'll take those. And he just like swooped in and grabbed them. Oh, man. And that's, then uh, I stood there and I was like, oh, man. That's heartbreaking, yeah. dude. Yeah. Now I kind of wish you had murdered someone. At least I could stand to look you in the face after something like that. <laughs> you know, because I value life so little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that was a big regret. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the uh, that's the quarter bin game right there. Sometimes you just move for speed and. You miss things, and I'm sure we we of that ilk, we've all got our own little uh, regret stories that we take with us, things that we shouldn't have done, things that we wish we could have, uh, uh, moments that we could redo and correct in our lives, but instead we just got to live with the reality of our shame. Yeah, as it says, as they say in a uh, cowboy bebop, you're gonna carry that weight. Man, that's rough. <laughs> Such a Boy, simple man. phrase that confronts us with all of the regrets and mistakes that we've done in our lives. <laughs> but getting back to Richard Corbin, let me ask you, Albert, what was your first experience of his work? So here's the thing: uh, doing this podcast i i knew that that question was going to come up so i i tried to prepare myself for it by really thinking back to the first thing that i could think of um with richard corbin's art and truth be told i really couldn't come up with anything it Mm. it almost feels like i've always just kind of been aware of his art but i can't i can't go back far enough in my memory to that first moment that I really saw something of his and I can't imagine that moment in my mind's eye, you know, that, that moment sure. where I saw that first Richard Corbin comic and I was just like, Whoa, man, <laughs> what is this art? Right. Um, yeah. But uh, here's what I can tell you based on, you know, just, the kind of feelings that his art does elicit for me when I do think about it. And I don't think that's changed because 
it's always been a quality of his art that has affected me. And I think what I felt then, you know, when I first gazed upon his art and what I feel now is still pretty much the same, which is technically speaking, I think he's obviously very talented and he's got a lot of skill, but there is something very unsettling about his art and he does it purposefully in such a way. Uh, so I think when I do look at his art, whenever I think about his art, there is always this feeling that the hairs on the back of my neck are just standing on, on edge. Um, Cause there is, just this sort of eerie quality to how he draws it. And again, I he did do work in eerie, the Warren uh, yeah. magazine. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe some people might take that as a disparaging remark or, or whatever, but you know, this is something that he, this is an aesthetic that he purposefully cultivated. So I think he's, um, I think he was, he would take it as a compliment because it's something that he very much intended for his, it was a style that he intended for his comics to look. Yeah. Um, so yeah. When I think back to the comics of his that he did, um, I think the earliest thing, or maybe like one of the earliest comics of his art I ever bought, was this miniseries called Ragemore. Uh, oh. It was from Dark Horse Comics. And I found all four issues of that. And I remember buying that. But I'm pretty sure that wasn't the first Richard Corbin thing that I'd ever exposed myself to. I'm pretty sure I'd seen other stuff by him in other comics. But I just... That might be, like, the earliest example of something that I bought from with with his name attached to it. Did he write that one himself? Mm, I don't remember. That's a good question. I have a feeling um, when I when I talk about my first Richard Corbin comics, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I read those too. It was written by Jan Stranad. Oh yeah, so, okay. Yeah, I think they've done yeah. quite a few comics together. Yeah. I I, I do know that I've seen his name attached to other comics. Uh, I remember reading his uh, Brian Azzarello Hellblazer run. And mm. I I remember he worked on Punisher the End. So I know I read that. Um, yeah, but there's a whole there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's not that his uh, his body of work is small because I'm, I'm sure he's done so much. He was so prolific. But I just at the moment cannot uh yeah I, I i just can't really name these things in the moment yeah 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 well i'm guessing you probably read those that hellblazer and that punisher story before ragemore because those kind of predate ragemore by probably. quite a few years i think yeah probably yeah yeah because for me my first experience with richard corbin was his mainstream work in the early 2000s because you know a lot of the stuff that he kind of built his reputation on in underground comics and the magazines when i was a kid i didn't really have access to that and i didn't even really know what that was i mean i think i knew what epic illustrated was and i knew what 
heavy metal was, but I don't think I knew where to find them. Like I would read about them in, in like wizard or whatever other comic book magazines there were, but I, it's not like I could go back and dig through the bins and drop a bunch of money on old back issues of those adult magazines. So I, I think my first time reading his work was probably actually this Hellblazer story, Hard Time, mm, which mm. was, as you said, written by Brian Azzarello. And we did talk about that. I remember when we did our Hellblazer episode, episode 97, I think we, we did talk about that as one of the standout Hellblazer stories. Mm. And then after that, I think I read, I might be misremembering the exact order, but Around the same time period, um, after reading his Hellblazer, I, I tracked down, I realized he did some other comics with Brian Azzarello, so I ended up reading those too, because he did Cage, you know, the, the Luke Cage miniseries. It was a oh, yeah, yeah, Marvel yeah, yeah. I remember Max that. series. Yeah, it was just called yeah, Cage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, they did that together at Marvel, and then they also did this miniseries called Startling Stories Banner, which was about... Doc Samson and the Hulk. Mm. Did you read that one? Banner? I read I read Cage. I I don't really remember. Actually, I might have read Banner too, but that one is less prominent in my memory. Um Yeah, Cage was a Max book, so it was a lot more violent and there were a lot more boobs. I don't think there were any boobs in Banner. Yeah, yeah. I think from what I remember of Banner, it was one of those stories where the Hulk really isn't a character. He's more of just this force of nature that these people are kind of tracking down. And it's really a, a story that's more about the after effects of his arrival in any location. But I, I could be remembering it wrong. Yeah, that's one I need to reread. I haven't read it in a long time, but I remember it being more on the psychological end mm-hmm. and then yeah there was also the punisher at the end with garth ennis which is a story i really like anytime I, anytime i see that issue in a quarter bin or even a dollar bin i liberate it so i can give it to somebody <laughs> I'll yeah buy that comic. yeah <laughs> it's so good yeah it's totally worth it it's it's a fantastic like single issue comic and it's it's got that creepy Richard Corbin art, and when you combine it with the, I guess, equally eerie uh, tale that Garth Ennis tells, it's a perfect fit. It's a perfect match for, you know, it's a perfect match made in heaven in terms of like the the writer and the artist working mm-hmm. just on full cylinders. When we did our episode on post-apocalyptic comics was that your recommendation i I forget no i did uh the hulk the end by peter david and uh, dale keon i think okay yeah maybe it was my recommendation i don't remember i think it was your recommendation (laughs) because i remember you picked punisher the end and i i guess me just being tongue-in-cheek just decided well then i'll do the hulk the end (laughs) Because it just felt like we might as well just stick to a theme. Why do you always got to put your tongue in my cheek? I don't know. I'm horny. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes 
The best joke is just a straightforward declaration. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's typically the unexpected response that kills people. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that kills people is axe murderers. So. Yeah. Yeah. The That's two of greatest destroyers of life. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> other Richard Corbin comics that I've either read or that I have. Uh, I remember he would do random short stories in various anthologies. Like, I want to say he did some some of those Vertigo anthologies, but I, I can't, I'd have to, like, really dig them out to identify what stories in which anthologies. But he also did uh, some issues of Hellboy. I remember reading at least a couple of his Hellboys. I think you had, you had found uh an issue of hellboy the one where hellboy fights some luchadors and i i remember reading years when we were hanging out at a coffee shop a couple yeah. of years ago uh, there the was issue this in front of me actually it's called the hellboy oh, nice. in mexico by mike nice. mignola mignola and richard corbin oh actually speaking of richard corbin and hellboy i i did see that dark horse is releasing a oh, library yeah, yeah, yeah. edition hardcover collecting just Richard Corbin's uh, Hellboy comics. It's called uh, Hellboy Artist Collection. It's yeah, pretty so cool. It's, I guess it's I like the artist the idea collection. Of it. yeah, yeah, it's oversized format hardcover with a cloth spine and full cover. It looks like it's supposed to come out in May of this year. So that's something to look forward to for any Hellboy or Richard Corbin fans. For sure, for sure. Another thing that I, I need to dig out and reread, he did an issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in the 80s. Oh, nice. Was it that period where they were getting a bunch of independent artists and creators to uh, make contributions to the series? Yeah, exactly so. Yeah, I have that issue. It's not in like the most pristine condition, but it's definitely in reading condition. I need to go back to it and, and pick it up because it's been a while since I read it. I just remember the uh, the cover had the, the turtles fighting like pirates and an alligator and some some other weird creatures. And it's just such a different weird style compared to to like some of their other comics that, uh yeah, it, it just stood out, man. Strange. Actually, you know what? I think I'm mis I think I'm misremembering it. I think he just did a cover of the turtles that had them fighting like through a time traveling thing. And then I think he he had his own issue that was about something else. So I I'd, I'd really have to go back and and dig it out. Mm -hmm. But this yeah, talking about his issue of solo definitely uh reminded me of his work. Because I guess even though he's a great artist, he's not necessarily someone I think about super often. I I don't actually own that much of his stuff. And mm. some of the stuff I do own is kind of like scattered in bits and pieces because I don't have like, other than the stories, his Marvel stories and his Hellblazer story, I feel like most of my Richard Corbin comics are just kind of scattered one shots or short stories yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a big solid run of any, anything. Yeah, yeah. It's 
I, I will admit whenever I do see a comic that he's worked on out in the wild in a quarter bin somewhere, I do grab it and, you know, if it's a one shot or something, I'll take it. If it's uh, part of something, I, I'll, I'll try my best to put it together, but um, I, I just don't feel like we see his stuff out there in the wild very often, you know? Yeah. There is one comic of his I found, I think it was just a few months ago, maybe maybe October or September, but we were at a sale and I found a copy. It's just a one-shot, but it's published by Pacific Comics from 1984. And the title is interesting because it's just called A Corbin Special, number one. But mm-hmm. the entire comic is an adaptation of the fall of the house of usher by edgar Allan poe you ever read that story uh i have not my my poe is pretty limited to the raven and maybe the cask of amantandilla I, I think that's what the name was um oh and the telltale heart okay okay yeah i don't think i had been too familiar with uh, the fall of the house of usher either but i read that comic earlier this week before reading his issue of solo and i enjoyed it yeah it's the the line work is definitely you know it still looks like the familiar later period corbin that i'm used to but the coloring is pretty fascinating um let me see the credits here it was colored by a couple named Herb and Diana Arnold. I've never heard of them. They don't ring a bell to me, but it's pretty interesting stuff because even though it's like this dark horror story, a lot of the colors are, how do I, not exactly pastel, but there's a lot of pinks, a lot of like really powerful greens. And it's stuff that I ordinarily would associate with garishness and just being kind of sickly and overly bright but in Mm -hmm. this case i don't know what kind of technique they used or what kind of coloring or printing process they used it it actually looks pretty good in my opinion and it it complements his art yeah i i I just feel like if anyone is able to pull off anything that's kind of garish and make it something that's just interesting to look at in spite of itself richard corbin would be one of those guys yeah yeah i think you would like his adaptation of the fall of the house of usher it's got boobs in it oh yeah he uh richard corbin is a pretty big boobs guy so that's also another reason i pick up his comics because it's a chance to see like forbidden areolas hello here i'm here okay i'm just chuckling at your enthusiasm yeah yeah you gotta find things in life to be uh enthusiastic about man otherwise what's the point yeah Yeah, there is no point in living then yeah 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 (laughs) what are some Uh, of the other things that you would associate with his art or what would you say are some of his notable traits as an artist i do think he has I don't know if if this is an accurate accurate use of it of of this phrase but 
I do think he tends to lean into the uncanny valley. Um, okay. That's that's that element of art where you take a figure and although for the most part it looks pretty normal, there's something about it that the artist has chosen to emphasize that makes it um, unsettling in, in how much emphasis is placed on this feature or, or uh, element of the, the painting. So it's, it's almost like when someone draws something and makes it so real looking that it's unsettling to you as an observer. I, I, that's what I tend to think of when I think of the uncanny valley, right? Um, so my my first thought when it comes to Richard Corbin is he one of the things that I always think about when I think about his art is the way that he draws teeth on people. Like mm-hmm. everyone has these really big, well, not everyone, but a lot of characters have these really big smiles with really broad square teeth that you know just mouths full of these giant square teeth that look almost like um i don't know like uh like blocks or something like that right and mm-hmm. even though on the face of it you can tell that these are teeth the size and the aggressiveness of how they look uh even though they're people teeth just makes you it just makes you feel, I guess, intimidated when you're looking at them. Um, Something very so, unsettling about how they look. Absolutely. Portrays, absolutely. Like when they smile, he often likes to draw these really broad smiles with these pronounced cheekbones. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know how when real people or people in real life, when p- people genuinely smile, there's like a, a crinkle around their eyes. So you, you can kind of tell when someone's just fake smiling. Yeah, it feels like he has a lot of fun drawing people doing that fake smile thing because there's something yeah. about their eyes he, that don't match exactly. their smile. They often have dead expressions. They they're mimicking what the physical attributes of a smile is supposed to look at like, but their eyes are often kind of blank and almost feels like they're just staring off into the distance and exactly they're just kind of mimicking what a real smile is supposed to look like it's it's kind of that idea that there are certain serial killers who are just so detached from other human beings that they don't know why people smile but they do know that people do smile so they are just doing their best job of impersonating a smile you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, and exactly. and just that idea in and of itself is kind of makes you queasy. Um, yeah. In addition to that, yeah, like his eyes are the second thing, the way that he draws eyes. Um, they often have these really just big, almost kind of bulgy eyes that, again, um, it's it's impressive how he's able to capture how the uh, the the lack of emotion in these eyes that's that's the thing right so i i it's not that he's incapable of drawing 
eyes with emotion or real genuine expressions. I'm pretty sure he is, but it's, I think he knows what he's, he absolutely knows what he's doing when he's drawing these expressions because he's trying to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. So uh, it's just a testament to his ability to capture um, how creepy the human beings can be. (laughs) (laughs) He does a really good job of capturing how creepy people are. There's definitely something about his art that makes it specifically well suited for horror mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he he also enjoys drawing kind of grotesque imagery mm. um yeah and i guess yeah in addition to that just his people stand out to me like he i feel like most of the things of his that i've read have had some kind of very specific um emphasis on violence but the way that he draws people makes them really stand out. I think it makes the violence hit harder and feel even more visceral compared to any other average artist. I've also noticed he tends to like drawing really big men with rock hard abs, and then he favors drawing drawing thick women with massive bosoms. So yeah, like, yeah certain type of character that he enjoys featuring in his art yeah in terms of body shapes exactly he he either makes guys like really kind of stocky and muscular um or if they're not fit he'll he'll make them look almost like potatoes you know (laughs) like (laughs) like stocky is probably the right term they're kind of lumpy looking he likes drawing, um, you know, when he draws his women, he, he, I, I have seen him make kind of muscular looking women as well, but the, I think that's where he draws that R. Crumb inspiration, where he draws yeah. them to be kind of, um, I guess voluptuous is how you would describe it, right? Just very, yeah. very I mean, much so. It, it's round, but not in a chubby or fat way. There's like, curves they're 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 curvy you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. or i guess you could call it thick (laughs) t-h-i-c-c right (laughs) yeah yeah i think you'd enjoy reading that house of fall of the house of usher adaptation there's something disturbing about it because part of the story or the the premise of the story is about the narrator going to this old kind of dilapidated mansion to visit his friend because his friend wrote him a letter and said he wasn't doing too well or just mentally troubled and could use a friend. So the narrator goes to visit him and then turns out that the his friend who's living there, who is a member of the Usher family, it's just him and his sister living in that home and they're hearing you know weird noises and things at night and having trouble getting rest and then one night the narrator is about to sleep in in his quarters where he's staying and then the the sister comes into his room and she just bears her breasts at him and they start making out and stuff but then the way that corbin draws that scene 
this woman, she's not exactly attractive, you know? Like, she's has, she's got really big breasts, but her face kind of looks like George Washington. <laughs> I mean, who are we to say that that's not attractive? That might be someone's fetish, for all we know. Someone who's yeah. just really into um, the Founding Fathers. Just, you know, so much so that their ideal fantasy is just, you know, being seduced by George Washington with boobs. That's fair. That's fair. Why are you so judgmental, Drew? <laughs> I'm a judgmental guy. What can I say, man? <laughs> Why can't you just let people have their things? <laughs> if they're into really freaky George Washington sex. Uh, hello? I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about solo number two? Yeah, let's proceed. Okay, so solo number two by Richard Corbin contains five short stories. We'll just do what we did with the previous episode when we talked about the Tim Sale issue. We'll just go through each of the stories, share any thoughts or comments that we have about them, and see where the discussion takes us. Yeah. All right. Cool. So the first story is titled Belzon's Treasure. This is a story that's entirely by Corbin himself. It's a 12-page story about an older archaeologist named George Belzon, who is searching for an ancient Egyptian treasure when he stumbles into the caretaker of the treasure. And then a few other treasure hunters catch up to them. And it turns out that the caretaker has some kind of supernatural power to defend herself when those other um, treasure hunters try to forcibly accost her. And then at the end of the story, George Belzon, because the caretaker is distracted by those others, he manages to finagle his way into the treasure chamber. And he's super excited and he decides that he's going to try and pack up as much stuff of it as he can. But while he's busy being greedy, the one entrance to the treasure room closes on him and he is trapped. So what so, are your thoughts on Belzon's treasure? So I guess one of the things that I forgot to mention in terms of, um, you know, things that I noticed about his art, but mm -hmm. I do think um, he he does tend to do a lot of. I guess horror adjacent or creepy kind of stories that yeah. that tends to be a lot of the inspiration for most of his works. So I do feel like I've read quite a few of his stories where we're introduced to like ancient ruins and artifacts and things like that. And I do think Belzon's treasure is, you know, a good example of that subject matter that he likes to explore quite a bit right um mm -hmm. i mean i don't i don't know if it's a, a a subject or a setting that he like would explicitly say that he likes to 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 use but i do feel like i've read quite a few of his comics that uh involve um ancient artifacts and ruins and things like that. And yeah, when, when you think about this story, um, there's something 
I want to say maybe romantic is the word about, you know, this idea of this archaeologist who's traversing the Egyptian desert in search of the this ancient temple in order to, uh, you know, find this these treasures and these artifacts. There's just something on its own uh, about that setting is always takes me back to being a kid and watching Indiana Jones for the first time or something like that, you know? Yeah. That's I guess that was point. Yeah, that's kind of my main thought there. Uh, you, if you look at some of the scenes uh, in in the later end of the story, especially you know once he gets into the sarcophagus and he's looking around and you see just all this treasure, there's yeah just something about that that's just kind of exciting to the imagination. Definitely. Yeah. And then uh, one thing you were saying that I wanted to touch on real quick is what you were mentioning about how the the way that we see Belzon journeying through the dunes of Egypt heading for this ancient temple like there's something there's something quite magical about it it's it's kind of those one of those things that triggers the sense of adventure or mm-hmm. even excitement because it's a treasure hunter um and i i really like the second page of the story it's just this wordless page that really highlights how far this guy is willing to go in order to look for treasure. Because when the story begins on the first page, he's on a camel. He's journeying through what looks to be a pretty treacherous sandstorm. And then mm. when you get to the second page, the sandstorm has ended at some point. But we also see that his camel was probably overworked to death and is just, you know, dead on the ground and he's trudging along on his own two feet and then yeah the sun is rising and he's getting tired and exhausted but as he gets closer to these ruins he walks past the corpses of these men who are just strung up on these other kinds of structures presumably they were killed and their bodies left there to deter other treasure hunters from trying to steal the treasure but he just looks at it and keeps on moving like this whole second page is wordless and it's fairly simple, but I just think it's some really good storytelling, you know? Like it's it's the kind of storytelling that you see in comics that teaches you that artists are, they're, they're as much writers of the story as whoever it is that puts the words in the character's mouth, you know? Like this is this is writing without using words and you know even even though uh richard corbin himself wrote his story obviously he would trust himself to tell the story without overburdening it with words i definitely do think that other artists and writers of comics could look at a story like this as kind of a template or a good example to learn from in in terms of how to tell a story that's well paced and how to put together a page that communicates mood and emotion and moves the plot yeah. forward without having to rely solely on words. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like a lot of the times other writers, you know, people that we've talked about, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to name check them right here and now, but in other instances, uh, 
they they kind of get in their own way because they feel you know I'm, okay maybe i'm projecting on on these other writers but they feel that the only way they can express a certain mood or an idea is by writing it out because they just lack faith in the readers to pick up on it right so they have to they feel like they have to explicitly write everything out so you the reader can read it and go ah that's what we're supposed to be feeling as we're looking at this scene which is i don't know generally speaking not a way that i prefer to read comics um yeah. and it's not i imagine that if someone was uh going to tell me a story and they were going to be so uh um obsessive about those details i i feel like i would get pretty i would feel pretty tedious rather quickly about that story yeah yeah it'd be yeah. kind of annoying it would it would yeah i think um, corbin does a good job in this story building up suspense because something's obviously amiss but at least for me i wasn't exactly sure what it was that was amiss until i got deeper in so he just does a good job of building that suspense and creating that sense of tension and then you finally get to the end um like and along the way there's these chunks of violence that even though they aren't flashy the violence feels pretty harsh like the scene when the other treasure hunters hit the hit bells on on the head with you know they just pistol whip him with their with the butt of a revolver and knock him over punch him and then a couple pages after that they're just ganging up on this lady who was the caretaker of the treasure and they're just you know punching her knocking her down and then just beating on her while she's down mm. it gets pretty intense he doesn't draw yeah. flashy stuff like he doesn't need to use a splash page on stuff like that but with every panel you can feel the intensity and the impact yeah yeah and then you know once you get into the scene where after they're beating on her and the change takes over i guess she's mm. possessed by whatever entity uh has been guarding this temple and you know it just goes from uh her being this really vulnerable sort of uh person to i, I don't know just some sort of demonic possessed uh uh zombie looking thing right <laughs> and yeah just in that scene the way that she just throws them around it's yeah it's 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 a good way to just capture i don't know the the horror vibes of whatever uh forces they've uh disrupted in pursuing this temple and then you know the final scene of it all once the old man has gotten into the temple and he's just filled his sack with all these treasures we we get the final ending which is this almost uh i guess a twilight zone ironic sort of ending where at the end of it all all these men end up tied to these giant uh statues and the old man ends up being locked in these treasures uh locked in this 
sarcophagus with this uh with all these treasures that he's been searching for you know the idea that oh he finally got what he wanted but at what at what price right (laughs) yeah it's it's not like the most complex sort of uh morality tale but you know it's 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 something that i do think yeah it works it's something i do think we'll see over and over again in in the kinds of stories that richard corbin likes to tell or at least here in solo yeah that kind of storytelling i think is particularly effective in comic book short stories i feel like anytime you do an anthology like this a lot of the endings tend to be kind of twist endings like that mm. and it's that just tends to be an effective way to use those pages because i feel like most creators generally have a tough time like doing something that's like super deep within a short mm. span of pages i mean yeah i think as we continue reading solo we'll find that some creators are able to do that but just speaking in more broad terms like the the notion of doing a short story especially at Marvel and DC where you're dealing with a mainstream audience probably can't go too far with certain things and you're trying to i guess usually you're you're trying to have it appeal to a general reading audience it it often feels like those kinds of stories can be pretty hit or miss like when i think of various anthologies that that uh i guess on some level they still do them every so often like like those legends of the dark knight or um what's that current one or those recent ones that they like those that superman up up and away was that what it was or was it red white and red something or other yeah red red white and blue i think or something and yeah, they had yeah. a one woman black one and gold woman. i think yeah yeah i feel yeah. like with anthologies like that sometimes they're just pretty inconsistent all around so, some of the writers try to write something that maybe they're just overly ambitious and they're, they're thinking like too big and it just doesn't work but with these twist endings like that almost always works you know like yeah going back all the it's way the to most the 50s effective and DC way of comics. just getting to you <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so they're they're punchy and they're still enjoyable yeah i think it might have just been called superman red and blue now that i think about it but i'd have to go back and look anyways yeah mm. oh there's a funny moment in belzon's treasure that I wanted to mention but it's the scene when the archaeologist he makes it to the to the sarcophagus but something about it just makes him tired and he falls unconscious and then when he wakes up he's in this well-decorated or well-furnished room and the caretaker of the treasure is kind of uh, helping him revive she's giving him some tea and talking to him a, a little bit and he tells her who he is and then at the end he he basically says uh yeah so i'm this famous uh archaeologist and these are all my credentials um but before i leave can i have something to remember this journey may i view your treasures and then she she's at this point she's completely covered like her hood is covering her face 
Mm. And, you know, she's just wrapped up in clothes. And then he says, he asks, may I view your treasures? And then there's a panel where her hooded, covered up face looks at him. And then another close up on his face where he says, just a little peek. And then she takes her hood off and we see her face for the first time. And then she takes all of her clothes off. And Mm. the dude is just staring at her. Yeah. (laughs) And the way that Corbin draws his face is, he's just slack jawed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it does feel like uh, Corbin does enjoy <laughs> using uh, 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 sex for its most. What's it called? For the most shock value and for the most uh, by he maximizes. Uh, the uncomfortable factor in it, either for comedy or just for effect, I I really couldn't say, but yeah, uh, yeah you know, it's it's rarely whenever we see the human uh, form, it's rarely just purely um, attractive, right? There's there's always like an underlying secondary use for for it other than just the pure sex appeal of it um Mm -hmm. i think yeah in this case it's kind of funny but um most of the times it's it's yeah like you were talking about with that george washington with boobs moment it's it's meant to be kind of scary too right and and i do think there's something to that that idea of um taking this thing that we so often associate with uh, a good emotion or with attraction or with passion and like turning it on its head and making it something that should something that that scares you a little bit and or or makes you a little sick um maybe that's the thing that he likes doing the, the way that other artists or musicians take whatever their medium is and take their art and use it as a means of just manipulating us the the consumer of of this art yeah that's a good point any other thoughts on belzon's treasure no i think uh i think we're okay there we can move on yeah yeah ultimately i guess i'd say it's a story about the pitfalls of greed and lusting after material riches pretty straightforward there but enjoyable nonetheless yeah the second story in the issue is titled cyclops like the other story before it this one's completely done by richard corbin this one's a bit shorter though this one is only five pages long and it is about it is about a war between cyclopses and these other warriors who are eventually revealed midway through the story to be humans it's one of those kind of ironic tales about how humans were the true monsters all along yeah yeah this story has in my eyes at least kind of unusual coloring it looks different than the other stories here i'm not sure yeah yeah, it looks like he was maybe experimenting with a computer or something, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. How did you like it? Yeah, if I had to be honest, I 
don't think I liked it too much because yeah. it might be mixed media too because there's certain scenes where the it's so it's a story about this war between these two species and the humans do look a little more like his conventional um style but the cyclops in particular looks kind of there's something about it that makes it look like it's computer computer animated or something and generated. uh computer generated exactly like i'll look at the so, second page of the story and the last panel when we get a close-up on the cyclops's face exactly exactly that kind of looks like some kind of cg doesn't it 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 looks like a very particular cg from like the early thousands or yeah. maybe even earlier maybe like the like late 90s or something like that you know kind of like, like that more... bad bad video game cg yeah that's exactly where yeah. i was going to it's uh i mean granted maybe these creatures aren't meant to look particularly appealing but uh that that cg look just kind of adds to it uh i think even the to... people look almost cg-ish or at least if not in the way that they're drawn at least in the way that they're colored because the people the humans have this very specific gray tone to everything like not only is there not only are their clothes and weapons grayish but their faces like when you see them take off their helmets and you can see their flesh it's all gray as well and it just makes a startling contrast between the humans and the cyclopses because the cyclopses are this like brownish red tone and you have them fighting the humans who are this gray tone and it's just mm. the backgrounds that are these other different colors yeah yeah and you know going back to the humans in this the the first attacker is you know they're they're in this pretty unique looking garb and uh you know they're they're dressed up to look like these warriors but then you realize fairly quickly that they're like women warriors and even though they've got this like really extreme jacked musculature like there's definitely boobs under there <laughs> yeah that there, yeah i don't that there are yeah yeah and I don't know, it's it's definitely a choice on his part. Again, it's that thing of, I don't know necessarily why he he chose to have them be these, like, women warriors. Maybe but, he enjoyed drawing the female form. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it could very easily be something as, as simple as that. Or, or you know, it, it might not, there might not be any more subtext to that than that right yeah but uh but yeah there's just um something about that particular choice especially drawing them that way that just it does make you it makes me stop and wonder especially in a, a story like this where you know it's about the this conflict between these cyclopses and you know humans and i think the way that the story is set up is you don't necessarily see anyone uh talking too much but there's a lot of narration going on and i think when 
you know, I, tell me if you got the same impression, but from what I remember of this story, um, it's, it's one of those things that where they play with the narration. So it makes it seem like, Oh, you know, the humans are the ones narrating, but it, you, once yeah. you get to the end, it's, it's revealed that, Oh, it's the Cyclopses who are narrating and it's, you know, we're seeing this fear of their, their own demise and this fear of their own, um, extinction. The, the yeah. they're, they're lamenting the loss of their way of life. Heck, they're exactly. lamenting the loss of their life and all of their culture. <laughs> like exactly. it's all being destroyed by these savage yeah. humans. Yeah. Because when you get to the final uh, scene of the book, they go into they the the two the two humans kill the one cyclops and they finally go into the the home of the the cyclops and there's like a cyclops woman there and there's art and there's books and you know all all the tra- all the trappings of uh, civilized culture that we see and yeah. what do they proceed to do they just maim these two cyclopses and burn it to the ground um they slaughter them yeah they slaughter them and not just the men but the women and the children too if there were any children (laughs) and yeah they they burn it to the ground and all they have to say for it is nice trophies veloka and that's it (laughs) you know they do it with such abandon and lack of care yep yep yeah but yeah, yeah I, very, mean, I think like even even though it's a savage story, there's something kind of sensual about it too. Like we were mm-hmm. talking about the way that Corbin drew the women in this story. There, there's definitely a, a pretty big emphasis on the shape and features of their bodies. They're very muscular, well built. They have crazy rock hard abs, six packs. And like on the third page of the story. The first panel, we get a pretty blatant butt shot. <laughs> but then yeah. even the Cyclops, the Cyclops that they're fighting, he's super buff too. So yeah, he's just the way that he's drawn. I think he's supposed to be naked, or if, if he's not naked, maybe he's got like a little thong. A but or yeah, or yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I do see the loincloth. But yeah, he's wearing he's wearing very little clothing. Um, oh, he has boots too, so he's he's definitely not naked. Yeah, see, he's civilized. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he's super buff. He's drawn with a lot of definition. Uh, I was gonna say, I guess that's kind of the uh, point of making. The other thing that we, you know, briefly mentioned is that the humans here are colored in gray, whereas all the lively colors are attributed to the cyclopses. Cyclops size, whatever. Um, but you know, I guess if we were really to assign any meaning to that, it'd be the idea that again, all all of the real signs of life are on the side uh, are are from what we see here are on the side of the cyclopses, and you know, it makes sense that there's a vibrancy and that there's a color palette that's so much more uh colorful um when you enter their home there's greens and pinks and golds and yellows and browns whereas the humans are all in gray so yeah it's 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 a little on the nose but you know you get the idea it's it's 
the humans are devoid of any like real creativity. They don't really care about anything. Um, all they care about is wanton destruction and uh, pillaging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what were you gonna say? Humans are bad. Humans are evil, man. They're the real savages, the monsters. That's what I've been saying for years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> humans have destroyed every good thing about culture and civilization and art. Every time I've had a bad day, it's because of humans. Yeah. Yeah. I hold humanity yeah. responsible for all of our problems. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. So uh, it's a simple five pager. I think it displays Corbin's penchant for buxom woman and fierce violence. Also wanted to point out the lettering on this one. I thought the lettering was actually pretty fun because like what we were saying earlier about how the art looks kind of like CG-ish. The the lettering, especially the sound effects, looks so hand-drawn it just stands out in total contrast and they're pretty rambunctious sound effects too like they're the kind of sound effects that harken back to like a more quaint era of comics i guess when you think about it because i'd say even by the time we got to the 2000s not that many people were necessarily relying on sound effects to this extent but in this comic, in this story, there's just a ton of sound effects, and they're all just drawn with personality. You have a thump, crush, mm-hmm. whack, twack, shuck, chuck, hack. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> they're just funny when you say them out loud. Yeah, yeah. But there's like a visceral sound to it, too, that just kind of adds to the violence that's being uh, perpetuated here. Yeah. The way that those letters are drawn definitely sell the impact, but there's also a charm to it too. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I do like how thick the lines are around the sound effects and just how, I don't know, just looking at them, it, I guess they have a good mouthfeel to them in the sense that, just looking at the, the the sounds that they're making, I could just imagine myself like just taking a giant wad of gum and just chewing it like loudly, smacking it in my te- between my teeth and my lips as I'm just going, <laughs> you know. That's great. Yeah. Anything else about right. this story? Nope. Shall we move on to the next? Let's. Okay. The third story in the issue is titled Homecoming. This comic, or this short story, is actually colored by Lee Luridge. So it's not colored by Corbin. This is another five-pager. It's a Western about an outlaw on the run from a posse. He manages to give him the slip, and he meets his pa out in the wilderness And he claims he didn't commit the murder that the posse is hunting him for. However, in the end, the father kills his own son. But the twist is that the father is the real murderer all along. And his plan is to tell the posse that his son confessed to the crime. So he hung him. 
and maybe he'll even get a reward for it. Pretty mm. dark. Pretty twisted. Yeah. 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 I mean, here we see another, it's another one of those reveal twist endings, uh, you know, right out of an old EC comic or the Twilight Zone that's supposed to mm-hmm. highlight just the depravity of man's nature, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have this story where the son has this great fear of being outed for a crime he didn't commit. And the revelation is who else but his father is the one who commits the crime. What what greater betrayal is there, right? Everything that exactly. we believe sacred and, and uh, safe is turned on its head when we realize that you can't even trust your own family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty dark. That's pretty twisted. It is. It is. It is. Grim. Yeah. Here it's kind of fun because uh, we're we're kind of seeing another setting uh, for the story. Uh, you know, in the first story, it was ancient Egypt, kind of not too distant past. Uh, you know, things are uh old but not super old and then we have this other setting this more of a fantasy setting in cyclops and here in homecoming it's it's uh richard corbin channeling his uh inner western you know yeah it's yeah very much a uh just a wild wild west sort of setting without the giant robot spider without the giant robot spider Yes. <laughs> uh. I like this one because of that setting. Um, the artwork is pretty fun, even though it's just wilderness. I was just staring at the way he was drawing the foliage and even the way yeah. that he draws the the plants on the ground. There's something creepy about it. Like, there's just something about it that I find a little unsettling. I think it's because... Uh, it just looks like there are a bunch of bumps. Like when you really stare at them, I'm looking, mm. for example, at the on the fourth page, the the second panel and also the second to the last panel. Like in those panels, the way that the little grass or the bushes look. Like if I didn't know, like if my mind didn't tell me that those were just plants, you could tell me that they were boils or something festering, and I'd it would just make my skin crawl. Yeah. I'd also add that there's something about, like when you look at those scenes where they're hiding out in the brush or whatever, there's something about all this foliage that just feels invasive too, right? It just Very feels invasive. like That's a good word. they're yeah. surrounded by it and it's just overwhelming, uh, like almost as if its growth is just exponentially growing and covering everything you know it's it's suffocating just the thought of it i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i like the tension and the suspense in this story it it does build up it starts off with some pretty heavy action and then when the dude meets his paw you get some slow building tension and then you finally get the twist at the very end but the like little funny bits in the art that jumped out to me on the third page, the third panel of the third page, when we see 
his paw and there's a close up on his paw's face. Just it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how Corbin draws teeth and this dude's teeth. He he looks like he should have gone to a dentist when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's quite as unsettling here uh as we've seen it in other places, but it reminds me of like a a Steve Dillon comic or something where the positioning of the teeth just kind of makes the guy look like a a yokel or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like yeah. with Steve Dillon, he the way he drew faces and characters who had open mouths tended to make them look like their front teeth were just really big or or protruding a bit. Yeah. They, but yeah, I guess, they I guess to... when I put it that way, that does that is kind of what a yokel looks like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when Steve Dillon draws them, they look a little dumber. But you know, it's the same. It's the same kind of idea. Have you ever <laughs> met a yokel in real life, Albert? Uh, I don't think I've met what would be conventionally considered a yokel. But I've met what I've considered a yokel. I've I meet those all What's the time. Difference. <laughs> um, I probably would tend to say that I play it a little more fast and loose with who I consider a yokel, just because I generally lack or have so little respect for other people. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, but like you, I did enjoy the Western setting. It, it, again, it's another one of those genres that's just kind of fun when it's done right. And uh, seeing Richard Corbin really throw himself into that that world and that kind of story. Um, yeah, it's just something, qualitatively speaking, I can enjoy just just because of that. And and maybe it's kind of a minor thing or a pretty simple thing, but yeah, sometimes that's all you need. <laughs> mhm. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's a nice little journey into some more dark territory. I guess really about the the evils of, or just the depths of evil that people are capable of. This father <laughs> who blames his own son for his own crime and ends up murdering his son yeah yeah i mean i guess in some way there's it's it's true to the spirit of i guess just the the darker aspects of the frontier and of of western stories um you know that sort of mirror opposite of the spaghetti western and the you know iconic western hero Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah you'll uh have anything else or you want to move on to the next story let's talk about the plague so the plague the plague what'd you call it the plaque plaque. (laughs) these guys all went to the dentist to take care of their plaque (laughs) okay go for it the next story is the plague it's a 12 pager about a selfish and opulent king who gets the idea that in order to defeat a siege, he's going to send some of his infected citizens to the enemy with the expectation that this awful plague will wipe out the enemy army. 
and the pestilence is effective, but it ends up spreading back into the castle. So the king abandons everyone around him and locks himself up in a tower for isolation. What'd you think of the plague, Albert? Yeah, it was a story that I liked. It's another sort of parable, sort of tale where you have this king who, you know, rules this empire and for all intents and purposes, he does have, I guess, what you would call good leadership instincts. But at the end of the day, he's he's just incredibly selfish, right? And mm. it's that same sense of self-preservation, that same sense of selfishness that is ultimately his downfall. Because, you know, as he commits these acts and and makes these plans that i guess in the short term save him what ends up happening is by focusing all of his energy on saving him and only him he is left with his final fate which is the the rest of the world destroying itself outside uh around him and he ends up being trapped or or not even being trapped it's a it's a prison of his own making he locks himself within his tower thinking that he's going to be safe from everything out there um and maybe that's the case but when once we get to that very final last page of the story you see him um you see these four panels broken down and it's just this slow decay decay of his face over time and in the very end the very last panel of of it is just him emaciated almost skull-like and what he says is i think i planned it well uh, well it says here now the king sits safely alone and and he thinks to himself i think i planned it well no friends no food but the plague didn't get me and <laughs> Yeah, it's just this idea that he spent all this time preserving himself, but really what did it get him when it was all over? And and it's another one of those sort of twist endings that reveals something about people and and you know, just how their intentions are ultimately detrimental to themselves. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that last page, too, because it's another darkly ironic piece of storytelling with an incredibly haunting final panel. And the story, I think it's pretty clear that it it's another condemnation of selfishness and greed. But this final panel on the last page, that one just, it stands out because... When I read the last page, it feels like all of these thoughts are him in that moment. You know, he locks himself in the tower. He's alone. Yeah. And then each of the four panels on the page, it's kind of like the camera is just rotating around him. And, you know, the, the passage that you just quoted that you read, it, it feels like he's thinking all those things. He realizes he has no friends, no food, but the plague didn't get me. And that last panel, that last panel, his face is drawn like a skull. It's 
it's haunting, man. It's very haunting. Like I don't Yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that he's like survived a whole bunch of time to literally look like that, but I I interpreted it as just the outward manifestation of what's in his heart. Just mm. this dead thing, you know? Like that's that's who he is reflected on the page and it's very very impactful storytelling yeah yeah and yeah and you can see that everything that king saw said dolly uh that's his name everything that he's done up to this point sort of led to this moment right Mm -hmm. so much of the story when when we start the story you find out that he's been collecting harshly collecting taxes from his people even though they're sick and they're dying of this plague but he doesn't you know the people that are loyal to him are ignoring the real threat of this plague and they they essentially tell him that oh they they were just trying to skimp on paying their taxes but we didn't believe them and we took their things anyway and you know, instead of being thankful or being grateful, what does he do to this guy who who's just dutifully carrying out his orders? He throws he he's smart enough to understand that this plague might be real, so he locks him up and isolates him from everybody else. But then when he realizes that um, you know, the distress throughout the land that's being caused by this plague and by just other societal factors has yeah led to uh rebellion uprisings what does he do he takes this one guy who who was dutifully carrying out uh his orders and he sends him out into the the wilderness to you know be amongst this uh renegade force just to get them all sick and mm. you know strategically speaking it's a plan that makes sense he he takes his uh court he takes his his uh, kingdom and he relocates to this distant uh, area and, with the hopes that this virus will wipe out all of his enemies and what ends up happening is this rebel leader shows up right at his doorstep and he just kind of holds up in this castle waiting and uh, you know while he waits for this plague to kick in him and his court they're just in there just living the most debaucherous life that they can have, you know, just one filled with food and drunkenness and, uh, you know, uh, whoring, I guess. I don't, I don't know what the German <laughs> says. Rampant <laughs> sex. Okay. And, you know, while they're like sort of enjoying all this, uh, uh, eventually the plague does kick in. And again, it feels like, oh, his plan worked, but at the end of it all, you know, he's still just a man. He may be a king, but he's still just a man, and the plague doesn't care. And the plague get, finds a way to get in the castle walls, killing everyone in his court before he he runs off and he locks himself away. And, yeah, it, it just goes to highlight that he might have been a smart enough dude to protect himself in the short term, but there are things, there are forces that even he can't control. And, you know, he was maybe, too prideful. 
Yeah, maybe the plague itself didn't kill him, but his machinations at the end of the day just left him with what kind of life did it leave him at the end of it all, right? He's got no friends, no food, but the plague didn't get him. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Like, it might not have killed him directly, but it still ruined him nonetheless. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like drawing. Yeah. Corbin's drawings of the people who have been infected are pretty striking, too. They just look absolutely disgusting, and staring at some of those images too long just churns my stomach. Like, I'm looking specifically at page 9. Like, pages 9, 10, and 11, where you really see the outbreak, there's some pretty gross stuff. Like, the bottom panel of page 9, when you see like close-ups of the people with the boils and stuff. It, it's nasty, man. It, it just looks all sorts of painful. And there's even a boil on that person's tongue. And then when you flip the page, you just see them like vomiting these weird bubbles and stuff. It's it's awful. Yeah, yeah. They have this weird chalky white skin. They're just foaming at the mouth. Blisters everywhere. It's it is not something I would want to get. Definitely not. Definitely mm-hmm. move on to the final story. Let's do it. Okay. The last story in the issue is called The Spectre, A Missing Life. And out of all the stories in this issue, it's the one that's kind of done like a traditional big two comic because it's written by John Arcudi, colored by Dave Stewart, and lettered by jack morelli so the one story in richard corbin's solo with a dc character of course it's got to be the specter the guy who was the manifestation of god's wrath on earth (laughs) (laughs) this is an 11 page story it follows jim corrigan during a night in new york city because he's also the host of the Spectre. He manages, he has the ability to see dead people. And in his case, as a detective, he also avenges them. And when he finds a skull, the Spectre gives the guy this horrific vision or experience of hell, which ends up killing him. But it's just another night on the job for Jim Corrigan. Because as a detective, as a police officer, He may be too late to prevent harm from occurring, but at least he can avenge the dead. So what did you think about this one, Albert? The first thing that I was going to say was this is also the one story in this uh, anthology or this collection that takes place in the modern day. So that's an interesting setting. Uh, You know, it's pretty noticeable when you contrast it against the other stories that we've read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he uses it to full effect because it's a story that's about, so if we've established anything so far in, in our reading of these stories that Richard Corbin has offered up in his segment on solo, we've noticed that it tends, he tends to tell these stories that make some sort of statement about the, uh, I guess the corrupt nature of people um, and just the 
the darkness within their hearts and within their souls. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that works here because, because it's a story that takes place in modern society. It takes place in the inner cities. So it's almost it's almost a statement on on the idea of even as we get more advanced in our society as technology gets more advanced these qualities that 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 sum up everything that's wrong with people these qualities that are at the core of what's wrong with humanity are always mm -hmm. going to be there and that's what we see when we take a look at what uh corrigan is talking about when he you know when he's pontificating about what it's like working in the inner city right because yeah. he goes out into the world and all he sees is decay and corruption there's this conversation that he's uh, having with this other cop where they're talking about how you know as police officers sometimes it's good for them to offer a little hope you know because they're out here doing uh, you know, connecting with the civilians, they're trying to do a good job, and he's just kind of busting Corrigan's balls about why he's got to be so miserable about it. And you know, he doesn't. Corrigan does doesn't really have a retort for it, other than I'm not here about hope. I'm here for justice. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's a lot more cold, and maybe a lot more straightforward uh let's see I'm, I'm trying to find the scene but uh yeah here here i'm reading it here so he's talking with his partner and he says uh they're having this conversation and his partner says uh he, he says it'll it'll end the way they all end in a dumpster or an abandoned basement his partner says hey they don't all end like that corrigan to which he responds, okay, not all of them, but this one will. Man, you didn't talk like that to her parents, did you? I mean, give these people some hope, you know? And uh, Corgan just responds with, hope? Polly, by the time people call a cop, something bad has already happened. They don't come to us looking for hope. They come to us looking for revenge, which is okay, because that's all I've got. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, uh... oh, and, and the final line of their exchange is, his partner goes, damn, Corgan, know what your problem is? You look at the world through crap-colored glasses. And he responds, no, Lovaghetto. My problem is I look at the world and see what's there. <laughs> right. It's, and it's then really good exchange. That, and that final line is punctuated from his point of view, of a panel from his point of view, where we see that Corrigan sees all these dead people, and they're all in various states of decay i guess it's because you know depending on how they were killed or what happened to them and it just looks like all of these spirits or images of dead people are coming up to him trying to talk to him to to get revenge on their behalf or something and it yeah that's got to be a, a pretty tough way to live when you've got to be surrounded by that yeah yeah and but I do think that line also just sums up like the recurring theme through all these stories that we've seen is just, it's just this idea that at the end of the day, that is just the world to, to people to are Corrigan. awful. 
yeah, yeah. exactly. The world is awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's another simple but dark story about punishment and morality. That whole sequence in the middle of the story when he finds the guy who, who killed the the girl, he turns into the specter and does all this he just touches him and and like messes up the dude from the inside out and and you see that this guy he's experiencing visions of hell where these little demon things are burning him up and tearing open his flesh and eating him up gets kind of gory surprisingly gory for a dc comic and this guy's just i guess he's not necessarily physically experiencing it but it's so real in his mind that he collapses and dies. And then some of the neighbors find him and they're like, Oh, looks like he had a heart attack or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I guess to, to drive home that point when we get to the very end. So one of the things that happens is there's a spirit that leads him to this killer. And the, the spirit essentially says that, I've been out here long enough and I'm willing to like do what it takes to like move on. Right. So after this all happens, Corrigan comes to him. Um, and, well, he comes to him as the specter and, and basically says, uh, Robert Sims, your, your penance on earth is served. It's time for you to cross over. It's time for both of you. So he's talking to, uh, Robert and he's talking to the young woman that was killed the victim. So he says, it's time for both of you. Step through. And the girl responds with, no, I don't want to. I, I can't. And at this point, Robert goes, honey, it ain't going. You need to be afraid of. It's staying. Ain't that so, Corrigan? And then they just walk into the light. And again, it just kind of reiterates that idea that, you know, hell is earth. <laughs> and for <laughs> them, it's it's not stay. It's not going into the unknown that should be the scary thing it's staying here um amongst the the rot and the decay of of humanity that should be the thing that should be fearful to them yeah yeah anytime there's a specter story i definitely find the theology questionable but i get the point and the story does do a good job of really portraying how awful people are, how terrible things are. And then in a way there's sort of a twist here for Corrigan as well, because the scene you just described where Robert Sims and uh, the young lady step through the specter's cape and, you know, move on to the next thing. Like when, when Robert Sims says, honey, it ain't going you need to be afraid of. It's staying. Ain't that so, Corrigan? And and the Spectre doesn't say anything, but you do get the sense that Jim Corrigan is all too aware that the guy is right, you know? Like, Jim Corrigan is the one who has to stay in this cesspool of humanity. Mm-hmm. He's the one who has to deal with the dregs of society and encounter the horrific things that people do to each other on a daily basis. That's, that's a lot worse than where those spirits were, were going. So 
that that's a good ending. Like if the story had ended there, that would have been pretty solid. But then we get this one final page that goes back, you know, goes back around to the beginning of the story where you got Corrigan talking to his partner again. And uh, yeah, the dude is like, oh, I heard they found the girl's body. And then Corrigan says, off an anonymous phone tip, I heard. And then the, his partner says, yeah, I think I'm going to take the coward's way out and have the police rep tell her parents for me. I just don't have the stomach for it, you know? And then the next panel, Corrigan says, well, then I'll do it. And then we have one final panel where they leave each other and Corrigan walks off into the distance. But again, it's from his point of view. So you see even more dead souls calling to him, almost like beggars yeah. asking for alms. And that's just how it yeah. ends. And that's that's a pretty grim ending. His work is never done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's something kind of heroic about it, about Corrigan being the one who's willing to take on and bear the responsibility of telling the young girl that, or her parents that, that, she's, that she died and that they've, you know, solved the case, essentially. Or I guess at least tell her parents that she's dead and confirm the bad news. There's mm-hmm. something kind of, I guess, maybe not heroic, but respectable that he's he'd be willing to do that himself after being so invested in the case. But there's also something pretty tragic about, not only about her death, but about his existence and him just right. trudging along aimlessly yeah well not aimlessly but trudging along because as you said his work is never done endlessly i guess <laughs> endlessly <laughs> that's yes. the tragedy yeah. yeah 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 because it's it's endless because as long as there are people there's gonna be awful yeah. stuff happening yeah 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 any other final thoughts on it um I did have one final thought, but it was something I wanted to mention about the plague, actually, one story back. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Just real quick. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to mention that was, I guess, stuck out to me about the plague that I didn't mention earlier was uh, in that story, I guess the one thing that we can see that's different about Corbin's art is that because we're telling a story that involves uh, nations and large armies, we we see quite a few scenes where the rebel army is there and you see uh, Richard Corbin drawing these, maybe not quite battle scenes, but just these, these images of large uh, collections of soldiers and that's not something that we saw in any of the other stories. The other stories were much more smaller, much more personal, right? So yeah. I do think Strong that... massive army. Yeah, I do think that that was, you know, just... If you're just talking about different things that he's bringing to each of these individual stories, I do think that that's something, um, you know, something like another weapon in his pocket that we're able to see that he's capable of bringing out when he needs to uh and and he's like quite 
adept at drawing this uh the, these uh giant uh formations of soldiers and stuff it's it's not something that we saw in any of these other stories and i just thought that was worth mentioning yeah that's a good point there's a lot of large crowd scenes in that story yeah yeah and it just i guess takes a different eye and a different uh i guess skill set to 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 draw those things and as as opposed to you know a story about a a, a western where you know you have a fugitive on the run or a story about a a treasure hunter in in egypt or or even you know a modern day uh a story that takes place in modern day inner city or something like that so uh yeah he he definitely has a lot of range here yeah totally totally do you have any right. closing general thoughts about the issue as a whole uh i yeah i liked it you know it's it's richard corbin's art is always so just interesting to look at and you know what i said earlier at the top of the episode i stand by it like whenever i happen to come across his artwork uh a comic that he did in a quarter bin or something it's something that i'm pretty tempted to pick up and look through and if if i can get it i i will you know uh just yeah just because absolutely his art so uh I don't really have any other way to describe it, but it's just so, I don't know, ugly, ugly, beautiful, beautifully <laughs> ugly. I don't know what the word is, but that's, that's, that's how I would describe it. Beautifully ugly, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. How about you? Well, I would say Richard Corbin's issue of Solo certainly highlights his affinity for violence and grim ironic twists kind of feels like the only thing missing is nudity and excessive gore because this is still a dc book but uh yeah i don't know what he was like as a person but i would say most of these stories felt like they held to a basic moral center specifically condemning evil and greed and really highlighting the pitfalls of humanity and the depravity of people you know it's like he none of the stories really explicitly say do good to one another and love your fellow man or anything like that but i think because they all highlight how bad people can be whether it's greed or murder or any other you know negative trait like that there's something about the fact that he zeroes in on those bad elements of humanity that kind of chill you to the core and make you, I guess they can help people by making people evaluate their own lives and how they treat people or how they view material wealth and stuff like that. You know, like you don't want to be the, like the king who doesn't care if he has no friends no food but the plague didn't get him you know there's like yeah that's such a good ending 
Yeah, yeah. Like it, it works on a metaphorical level, and I think does has something to say about the human condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that they're like actual morality tales in the sense that he's saying explicitly to the audience, "Hey, don't be selfish," or "Hey." don't trust your family even they're capable of evil or whatever right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's yeah I, I i don't know if i could confidently say that this is uh this was a a deeply personal statement on his part that highlighted what his personal beliefs about the world were but maybe to some degree it did but I could also just see it as his, not necessarily passion, but uh, I guess just the kind of stories that he was having fun with, you know? Uh, yeah, just, totally. Yeah, that's. I think that's how I, I, I probably see it. Okay, so if you were to rank the stories in this issue simply by how much you personally liked them, what's your ranking, Albert? Uh... I think I would go with the plague, the Spectre story, um, Cyclops, Belzon's treasure, and Homecoming. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. How about you? My ranking, I had this is a t- this was a tough one for me, but because I think after we talked about things more. I, I might actually would have wanted to like switch some things around, but what I wrote down mm. before we podcasted about this, I wrote down my first favorite would be Homecoming and then Cyclops, the Spectre, the Plague, and Belzon's Treasure. Mm. But I feel like after talking about it with you more, I'd probably move the Plague a little bit up. I don't know if it would make it to number one, but I'd probably at least bump it up past uh the specter maybe even cyclops yeah i'm kind of curious what your thought process behind that was i mean like before we talked about it what were your feelings about the plague exactly before we talked about it i i think i really liked that last page i really liked the way that he drew the sick people but Mm. i think I think by the time I sat down to compose my rankings, some of the earlier things that took place in the story had kind of like slipped my mind or they weren't at the forefront of my mind. But talking to you through the story, I think that brought back some some memories of things and, and also, you know, helped me appreciate different elements of it more than I did on my own. Mm-hmm. So you had an impact on me, Albert. Nice. Nice. Now yeah. we can only hope that that same impact reverberates out with our audience. That's right. Because <laughs> that's what we do this for. To manipulate other people into agreeing with us. <laughs> 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 you think I do this for money? No, I do this for influence. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I get off on tricking people into believing what I believe. It really gets my rocks. It really gets my rocks (laughs) off. (laughs) Uh, Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have any 
comics that you would recommend to people? Any Richard Corbin comics? I mean, I'm pretty sure we've just talked about most of the the ones that we I I would probably recommend. So, you know, Punisher the End makes total sense to recommend. Uh, that Hellblazer storyline um, that he did with Brian Azzarello, and uh, I had forgotten about it, but yeah, I do remember reading Cage, and I'd recommend that. Cage was a good read. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, trying to think if there's, well, do, what, what, what would you recommend? Do you have anything? My recommendations would have just been the stuff that you were just talking about because mm. mainly because those are the ones that I've also read. I mean, obviously Richard Corbin did a ton of classic underground work and quite a bit of it is actually being reprinted. I think Jose Villarubia has been working on like recoloring or remastering some of that stuff and they're being put out in these really fancy hardcovers. I don't have any of them, but like I've seen them and they do look pretty great. They're just kind of pricey and also, you know, sometimes you just can't buy everything that looks interesting or you don't have enough space. So Yeah. 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 It would be tough for me to to just like pick them up and grab buy them on a whim. But a while ago, late last year, I think it was around Halloween time, there was a Humble Bundle for a bunch of creepy comics, like the Warren magazine, Creepy. So it was a pretty massive bundle with like all the archives, like 25 volumes of archives or something like that, a little bit more. And one of the volumes is Creepy Presents Richard Corbin. So it's like, his definitive collection of all the stories he did in creepy and eerie. So I I do have that in digital format along with the rest of the creepy magazines uh, archives. So I'd have to check it out. I I haven't read it yet, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of pages. It's I'm looking at it right now and it's 353 pages of Richard Corbin and it, yeah, I think you'd like it, man. There's boobs in it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah if if you've ever encapsulated the entire Tao of me it's uh if there are boobs in it i probably like it so there we go yeah. you've deconstructed me <laughs> how does it feel to be deconstructed it's uh pretty eye-opening to realize just how obsessed with boobs i am <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love his Mainstream work, the Hellblazer, Punisher, the End, and Cage and Banner. I guess I'm a, a plebeian when it comes to Richard Corbin. Yeah. Well, I guess I could put out something like Rage More. But oh yeah. That was a good read. Uh, you know, it's just a, a story about a man who inherits a house, and the house turns out to be this completely evil force that just slowly drives him mad over time (laughs) nice yeah yeah that's a good title for a comic by the way rage more Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. trying to think i was trying to see if there were any like steve dylan comics i could recommend because i do think steve dylan and him kind of occupy you know a a very similar niche in in terms like i i think uh corbin's 
probably the better artist out of the two of them in terms of like just aesthetic appeal but i do think that there's similar similarities between their art styles steve dylan did draw a lot of hellblazer yeah he did totally and you know if you think about like the stuff that he did on like preacher with garth ennis there was definitely a lot of gross out stuff in there too yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah all right well you got anything else nope that's about it all right well i guess we can close out so if anyone has anything that they'd like to contribute to the conversation anything that they'd like to add feel free to hit us up on x on threads or on instagram you can hit us up at between the gutters on instagram uh or on x uh you can email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on if you could you know share like subscribe and uh give us a high rating or a thumbs up or whatever whatever it is you can do for us that would help the algorithm to boost us to other people we would greatly very least believe in all of the things that we say and agree with our opinions yeah well that's not the least you can do Uh, me personally (laughs) the least i want you to do is i want you to write down a transcript of everything that we've said tonight take that piece of paper wrap it around a brick and chuck that brick through someone's house window yeah so then that's how we're not yeah we can change even more people's (laughs) minds and make them aware of our thoughts and opinions exactly if that's the only way that people are gonna find out about what we think i'll take it (laughs) yeah yeah good plan good plan thanks i'm a marketing genius (laughs) i would hire you if i needed a marketer (laughs) or if If i wanted someone to commit a hate crime (laughs) (laughs) all right next week we'll be back with an episode where we discuss a comic called The Seeds by Anne Nocenti and David Aha, published by Burger Books, an imprint of Dark Horse Comics. So we hope to have you tune into that as well. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters, signing off. Peace. Heck yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs>